Hi, and welcome to the Passionistas Project Podcast, where we talk with women who are following their passions to inspire you to do the same. We're Amy and Nancy Harrington, and today we're talking with Katie Chin, a celebrity chef, award-winning cookbook author, spokesperson, food blogger, and the culinary ambassador to the National Pediatric Cancer Foundation. Katie has had a cooking show called Double Happiness with her mother, Leanne, has appeared on TV shows like The Real and The Today Show, and written five cookbooks, including her latest, Katie Chin's Global Family Cookbook, filled with internationally inspired recipes your family and friends will love. So please welcome to the show, Katie Chin. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for being here today, Katie. We're thrilled to have you. What's the one thing you're most passionate about? The one thing I'm most passionate about is honoring my mother's culinary legacy because everything I know about life and cooking, I learned in the kitchen from her. Talk about how you came to that place where you wanted to honor her legacy through food. We have to go all the way back to 1956 when my mother immigrated from China, from Guangzhou, China, to Minneapolis, Minnesota, of all places. She didn't speak any English. Uh, She was making 50 cents an hour as a seamstress, but she always loved to cook. She couldn't even find fresh ginger at the market at the time, but she improvised. She grew bok choy in our garden and somehow whipped up these, you know, gourmet Chinese stir fries, even though our family had no money. One day she decided to throw a luncheon for some sewing clients in the 1970s. And they were blown away by her cuisine because back in the day, they only had chop suey and chow mein and they had never tasted authentic Chinese cooking. So they encouraged her to start teaching classes, to cater. And one thing led to another. She became very popular as a caterer. But bear in mind, she didn't even have a car. She had to take the bus, okay? But her popularity continued to soar. And one day she hooked up with a socialite and the socialite wanted to open a restaurant with my mom. So the socialite happened to be friends with the owner of the Minnesota Twins. And the owner of the Minnesota Twins was friends with Sean Connery. What? Like, that's crazy. So what happened is Robert Redford was in town directing Ordinary People in Minneapolis. And Sean Connery came to visit him. And somebody threw a party and my mom was catering it. So both Robert Redford and Sean Connery are at this party and I served them dumplings. Okay. I was a little girl, but I served them dumplings and my knees were buckling and I'm like, ah, anyway, Sean Connery decides to invest in my mom's restaurant too, which is unbelievable, right? In Minneapolis. Oh my God. And so once word got out that Sean Connery 007 was investing in my mom's restaurant, there were lines around the block and it was quite a quite elegant restaurant. She opened more and more restaurants. Now I'm in high school at the time and I barely saw my mom. She literally was sleeping on the banquettes. She worked so hard, but she opened more restaurants and more restaurants. And by the late 80s, my mother had over 30 restaurants. So General Mills uh, bought my mother's company and made her head of this division, this restaurant division at General Mills. Now bear in mind, my mother never even went to high school and had been making 50 cents an hour as a seamstress. So it was a a remarkable story, really, for anybody, any woman, any minority, but really anyone with a dream. But she was also quite philanthropic. She um, served on several boards. She was on the board of the Minnesota Vikings and the Minnesota Twins, but had never even been to a game. She spoke on the steps of the White House. She met the Clintons. Just unbelievable. She became this huge celebrity. Anyway, she ended up buying it back because she didn't like what they were doing to her food. And she went on to create a chain with over 50 locations, which still exists. Our family's not affiliated anymore, but it's called Lian Chen. 
Okay, so I grew up working in my mom's catering business in our tiny basement in Minnesota. And while all the other kids were ice skating or at the mall, we were frying chicken pieces, gritting our teeth. (laughs) But we knew something magical was happening to our mother. I just vowed to never work in the food business and to get the hell out of Minnesota. It was freezing cold. No offense to Norwegians or Swedish people, but there were like, it was not diverse at the time at all. We were like the only Asian family for miles. So anyway, I left. I went to school in Boston, you guys. I went to BU actually. And then I moved to LA. I worked in the entertainment industry for 14 years and I was just so busy. I had forgotten how to cook. And while I thought I was making my mother proud, I had actually done the opposite because I had forgotten how to cook. And I think because in so many Chinese American families, you're supposed to become a doctor, a lawyer, a professor, and all my siblings are those things. And I did something that was so radically different. It forced me to work even harder to be successful so they wouldn't worry about me, even though they had no idea what I did. So anyway, long story short, I decided to throw a dinner party one night, but I kept calling my mom, asking her questions because I forgot how to do everything. And she was like, this is ridiculous. So she got on a plane with frozen lemon chicken. She showed up on my doorstep. She cooked the whole meal, but she let everyone think that I had cooked it because she was just that kind of mom. So meanwhile, she opened my fridge and found only champagne and yogurt, completely mortified. And she set out to teach me how to cook again. So she kept flying to LA and teaching me and my friends how to cook. And they're like, oh my God, you guys make this look so easy. You should do a book together. And I was like, we should do a book together. So I got us a book deal, but then I realized that I was lacking a lot of passion and meaning in my life, even though my career was very good to me. I was in a very unhappy marriage. So I just decided to completely change my life. And I quit my job as a senior VP at Fox and I left my husband all in the same month. Now, I don't recommend doing all those things in one month's time, but first of all, I didn't have kids. So I felt like I had the luxury to do so. And I also felt like if not now, then when? Like life is so short. So I just did a complete 180 and she and I came together. We did the book together. We had a catering business together called Double Happiness. We had a show on PBS together called Double Happiness as well, which was a mother-daughter cultural cooking show. But she hated to be on TV, so she really focused on the cooking. So I had to do most of the talking. So I'd go, okay, so if you don't have Asian hot sauce, you could use Mexican hot sauce, right, mom? And she'd go, no. So she was hilarious without trying to be hilarious. She was totally the straight man, but so funny and charming because of it. But anyway, we we had lots of wonderful culinary adventures together, going to China for the Food Network and going on the Today Show a bunch of times. It was truly a gift because finally coming together as adults, she opened up to me and told me a lot about her life in China and all of the hardships she endured. Tell us a little bit about your entertainment industry career. What did you do? And did you have a passion for it in the beginning? I just fell into it. I wanted to um, move to New York City and work in advertising like that girl. That was my dream. I wanted to be Marlo Thomas. But what happened is I was, my boyfriend went to school at Brown. So I was working at a radio station in Providence and the Warner Brothers rep walked in and we started chatting and being from Minneapolis, I didn't know anything about the entertainment industry. So he was like, oh yeah, I represent Warner Brothers and blah, 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 blah. He was like, why don't you come intern for me? And I'm like, what? People get paid to do that? So anyway, I was the on-campus rep for Warner Brothers. And um, then I moved to LA and I, do you know Nancy Kirkpatrick, Amy? Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. So Nancy was my boss when I worked for Warner Brothers in college. And then she got me a job at a PR firm called Klein and Feldman, which became Klein and White. So I worked in PR when I first moved to LA, but then I realized PR wasn't really for me. I'm more of a promotions person. So then I uh, went to Orion Then I was a consultant, but I didn't drive (laughs) to take the bus and cabs. And I lied and said I could drive. You do what you got to do. So then from Orion, I went to Disney and then I was a manager of national promotions. And then I set up a college internship program, much like the one I participated in at Warner Brothers for Disney, flew all over the country, hiring interns. What a great job when you're like 25. Oh my God, so much fun. Then I got promoted and worked in national promotions at Disney. Then I left and went to Fox when I was a director of TV promotions there. Then I got promoted. Well, see, I never wanted to stay in it. I didn't ever want, I wanted to move to New York. I didn't want to stay in LA. And I'm on my third marriage. My life is an open book. I'm just going to tell you everything. So I was, I got married when I was 23, which was really idiotic. And then he was gay. So we got divorced, obviously. And so I was going to move to New York, but I was just kept getting promoted. And I'm like, why do I keep getting promoted? Anyway. So then I became a senior VP of Synergy when I was like 29. And then I ended up moving back to Minneapolis to run my mom's company for a year, which was a mistake. I won't go into that. Then I came back I worked at Universal, where I was head of promotions there. Then I went to an agency. Then I went back to Fox. And that was my last studio job. So you must have been ready for a change when that moment came in your life, because those are exhausting jobs. None of those jobs are nine to five jobs. It's one thing if you're very passionate about your career and you have this incredible stress in your life. But when you feel dispassionate and there's that incredible stress. It really is harmful to your body, your mind, body, and soul. And I felt like it just wasn't worth it. It just, it was very hard to face the studio exec, the chairman of the studio, the the unbelievable pressure that you're under. People don't realize, you guys know, and that feeling in the pit of your stomach. So I was just like, I I, I just saw this as like a a chance to escape. I really felt like I needed to escape my life. But being like the good Chinese American girl that I was, everything looked perfect on paper. I was really living a lie because I wasn't feeling passionate about my career, but then also I was not happy in my marriage. So I just feel so lucky that a lot of people don't have the luxury to escape their circumstances. Let's talk about that moment where your mom flew out and helped you with the party. What did that mean to you that she did that? And how did that really start to trigger this renewed interest in food? I was surprised that she did it, but then she uh, was so amazing in that way. Like it was amusing to me that she did it. And I, of course, wanted to bring her out into the dining room. She was like, no, 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 no. And it was about saving face is very important in Chinese culture. And I think she was just like, I don't want them to think that you can't cook. So you just do that. I'm going to stay back here. A lot of Chinese people express their love in in interesting ways, non-Western ways. If I did well in school, she would make a special dish. You would get a whole steamed fish and black bean sauce. If I came home with all bees, I get pork chow mein. If I got a promotion at work, she would, her secretary would send me a Prada purse typed by the secretary to Katie from mom congratulations, no love, proud of you, love you, anything like that. So very subtle actions of love. So coming out to do that was an expression of love. 
my renewed interest in cooking really came more from at first it was my business acumen because my friends were reacting to this. You guys are such a cute team. You make such a great team. You two together, you could really do some great stuff together. You should do a book. You know what I'm saying? I started to see a mother daughter culinary brand. That's the first thing I saw. It wasn't conscious to me. Wow. I can really now get to know my mom. I was like, Ooh, this is cool. This is like a giant, big mound of putty and I'm going to shape it and I'm going to build this brand. This is going to be great. So in the beginning, I wasn't really that into the food part. I was like front of the house. I'm going to get us gigs on TV. I'm going to develop a series together. And so what ended up happening is my mother was doing most of the work and I was uh, the front man. And so this went on for a while and my mother was very wise. And she, after we had our catering business for a couple of years, she announced that she was going to Europe with her friend Denise for three months. But we had all these catering gigs lined up. And I was like, what? Huh? What are you talking about? What are you talking about? So she left me to my own devices because she knew it was the only way I was going to learn. So I figured it out and I added some things. Like I modernized some of the recipes and then she came back, but she didn't like it because I changed a couple of things and we got it. We only had two fights because she passed away about 13 years ago. One was... I changed an edamame recipe and I used tahini instead of peanut butter. She got mad and drove away. <laughs> Very passive aggressive. Didn't really say anything. She's like, Chinese peanut butter, always best. Gets in the car, drives away. Another time, right before we went on the Today Show for the first time with Ann Curry for Chinese New Year. So it's customary to serve a whole fish to symbolize abundance because the word for abundance in Chinese is in hominin. Abundance means fish means abundance, but also a whole chicken with the beak and the tail, the head and the beak and the tail to symbolize unity, family unity, and a favorable start and finish. So my mom's, you have to have a whole chicken on the set. And I'm like, mother, we cannot show a whole chicken with a head and the feet and everything on national television. And then she we were staying with my sister at San Francisco and I'll never forget, she slammed, my mother's never slammed the door. Like she was just raised in such a way that she wasn't allowed to scream or be fight aggressive or violent in any way, but she slammed the door. I slammed the door. And then my sister Jeannie was like, and I know what she was thinking. She was like, how could I have raised such a white daughter? Such a guaylo, that means white ghost. That's a derogatory term against white people. How could I have raised such a white daughter in her mind? I'm sure that's what she was thinking. Anyway, I won out because we got in the conference call with the producer and I was like, I'm just wondering, we typically show a whole chicken. And, and the producer was like, we cannot show that on national television. <laughs> and, and I wasn't like, yeah, I won or anything like that. I was like, in my heart, I knew I was right. So it was just interesting, the dynamic, but it was for the most part, very respectful. And like I said, the biggest gift is in those quiet moments when we were cooking together, she would open up and talk to me more like a friend and tell me about my God being in an arranged marriage, meeting your husband 10 minutes before get married to them. So many crazy things that happened to her. Tell us a little bit about your first television show together. It was called Double Happiness. It was on PBS. And because of my marketing background, I, and, and I just wanted to, you know, say this because a lot of people, particularly when they decide to become an entrepreneur and to 
pivot and try something new. It's scary. They don't know how, they don't know what to do, where to turn. And I think you just have to grow some balls sometimes and just ask for things. And what's the worst thing that can happen? A person rejects you or they say, no, you're not going to die. I mean, just move on. So I was like trying to figure out the best distribution channel for us. We had pitched Food Network. They passed. They didn't think an Asian show would fly, which I think is ridiculous. But I was like, PBS seems like a good starting point. So I just did some research and I found a producer based in Hawaii on the internet. She had produced a Roy um, Ramaguchi show and Charlie Trotter show. So I just found her number and called her up and I was like, hey, my name's Katie. My mom was this famous chef, owned a restaurant chain. I'm coming to Hawaii. Do you want to get together for coffee? And she said, yes. So sometimes it's as simple as that. So I think sometimes just the stars align. As Oprah said, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. And I think it is so true. So anyway, she had gotten Kikoman to fund Roy Yamaguchi show. She still had a contact there. So they happened to have money left in their budget they needed to spend. So this rarely happens in a life, but we basically made the phone call and had the funding in two weeks. We worked uh, closely together. We shot 13 episodes in 10 days time in Hawaii, which was fantastic. And it was challenging because I had never done TV before. And as, as you guys know, like getting up and doing a PowerPoint presentation for a bunch of executives is one thing. Being on television with your mom who doesn't like to say anything is another thing. I actually tricked my mom and forced her to train with my acting coach, but I told her we were going to get manicures and we pulled up to his house. She's like, where are we? I go, we're not getting manicures. We're training with my acting coach. She just went, (laughs) so we go and he was adorable. My acting coach was a lot like Billy Crystal, like his personality very warm and loving and so funny, but we're working with him and he's like, okay, Leanne. So, you know, what you're making right now is three ingredients. So you can't keep your head down. It's a pretty easy recipe. You got to look up, you got to look up. Okay. And then, as I've mentioned, my mother never really touched me or said, I love you. We just, she didn't, wasn't raised to hug us. So at the end of our first trial segment, he was like, Leanne, you got to put your arm around your daughter at the end of the segment. She looked at him, she goes, do I have to? It was challenging for me. And learning how to do TV isn't really something you can practice. You can try, you can work with a media coach, particularly live TV. You can't get better at it unless you're actually doing it. So I'll say it was hard in the beginning and but we had a blast doing it. And honestly, because I'm working on the solo show, I hadn't looked at any of the footage because it's just too painful. So I'm planning to incorporate some of it. So I, I've been watching some of the clips This was years ago. We did this in 2004. It's been many years, but it's very difficult to watch and not get emotional. We're Amy and Nancy Harrington, and you're listening to the Passionistas Project podcast and our interview with Katie Chin. Check out her blog filled with delicious recipes and get a copy of her latest book, Katie Chin's Global Family Cookbook at chefkatiechin.com. And look for Katie during the 2021 Passionistas Project Women's Equality Summit being held virtually on August 20th through August 22nd. Katie is taking part in the panel called Kitchen Table Talk in the AAPI Community on Sunday, August 22nd at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern. Later that evening, we will present the Passionistas Persist Awards to Margaret Cho and Dr. Jane Goodall. Our producing partner, Selene Luna, will have an intimate conversation with Margaret Cho 
and we'll chat with our hero, Dr. Jane Goodall. For details, go to thepassionistasproject.com backslash 2021 summit. Now here's more of our interview with Katie. You've written five cookbooks. So tell us a little bit about where you draw inspiration from when you're writing a cookbook and what that process is like. The first book I did with my mom, in all honesty, she did most of it because of my, I told you, I was still actually working at Fox. And then she had passed away. So I had to really not rely on her platform or her name. So the next book I did was 300 Best Rice Cooker Recipes. And I had to test 300 recipes in different rice cookers. <laughs> so I had all these different testers coming in and out of my house. But I draw my inspiration from travel because I've been fortunate. I've traveled to many different countries. Most of my friends happen to be children of immigrants. I think we just birds of a feather. So I've been so privy to so many wonderful meals cooked for me by my friend's parents and eating out just pre-COVID, obviously. And also pre, I have 13 year old twins now, but so I didn't eat out a lot when they were younger. In LA, we're so, you know, fortunate because there's so many awesome restaurants and such a diversity of exciting food and um, so many different mashups happening. I just try to draw inspiration mainly from my friends and their parents. Also what I see on TV. And I just try to also as a mom more recently. So the, my most recent cookbook, the Global Flavors Cookbook, I think because kids have grown up watching the Food Network, watching Top Chef, making food on TikTok, their parents being able to travel, being able to take their kids to foreign countries. I think today's families in the U.S. have a much more open and sophisticated palate than our generation, for example. And whereas back in the day, if you went to a mini mall, oftentimes you just find pizza and donuts. Now, you're likely to find poke or an empanada shop. I just felt like people wanted a resource to replicate some of those flavors at home in an easy way, not requiring a million trips to an ethnic market using their everyday pots and pans. So I'm always, I love to eat. I'm here in Vegas right now. So you did a special for the Food Network and then you traveled to China with your mom. Can you tell us about that experience and, and what was it like going there with her and experiencing that? It was really awesome to be able to go back to, you know, I've only been to China a couple of times, but wow, to meet her family. And because of the Cultural Revolution, you know, she didn't see her family for 30 years. So I can't speak Chinese, which made it challenging, obviously. And they would just start laughing at me. I know enough to say, hello, how are you? Nice to meet you. But they would just point at me and laugh at me. But this is one of the most memorable parts of the trip. So we were tending to celebrate my mother's birthday at her brother's apartment. And uh, her family in particular, and I think this is quite common in China, the purpose of sitting down to eat is to eat, not to speak. Like you're not like having conversations, you're just eating. The point is to eat, not to make like chit chat. So the producer who happened to be Chinese American, she was like, okay. And there's like a whole pig there. Like it's like a big, huge banquet of food. And there's probably 14 of us around the table. She said, it's really important that when the cameras start rolling, that you guys are really gregarious, talking about the food, clinking your glasses, or we're going to do a toast. So I go over to my mom. I'm like, mom, they want us to sip, blah, blah, blah. I go, can you tell them to do that? And she goes, oh, they're not going to do that. And I was like, okay. So I go back to the producer. I'm like, they really not are equipped. They're not capable of doing that. She was like, okay, that's fine. But if they can just look excited and clink their glasses without talking. You do the toast, they clink their glasses, and then they dig into the food gregariously. I'm like, okay, I think they can handle it. My mom tells them that. 
doing that. So I'm like, okay, blah, 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 blah. We're here to celebrate. Somebody's translating. And then I do the toast. And then they all sit there like this. Because you, can you imagine how bizarre and foreign all these cameras are rolling? And they're just like, <laughs> like that. So that was pretty funny. Then we went to the world's largest floating dim sum restaurant. It's called Jumbo in Hong Kong. And we're back in the kitchen with the dumpling masters. And he's teaching me how to make the delicate fold on the hargao in the kitchen. Camera's rolling. He's teaching me. My mom says, why are you so slow? <laughs> but it was always out of love. I was like, thanks, mom. But so wonderful to be there with her. And also, again, just being there. She told me a story while we were there that after World War II, the Japanese mafia were still threatening a lot of the neighborhoods there that if they didn't get paid off, they would bomb different communities. So my mother's father owned a grocery store. She was 12 at the time. And my mother was a tomboy. So she would deliver 50-pound bags of rice on the back of her bike. She was really a master of the abacus. So she had all these skills, but because she was like a tomboy, she had the least value in the family. So the Japanese threatened to bomb, and I guess her family and a bunch of the neighbors decided to leave just in case they bombed, but they didn't tell my mom. So my mom came home from school and realized everyone had evacuated except for a couple of the employees. And I said, oh, the family decided to go to another village in case the Japanese bombed. And she realized in that moment that she had been left behind to die, but they needed somebody, you know, to stay behind just in case they didn't bomb. So she was there. She told me eating dinner with the employees by candlelight. She'd play mahjong with them. In the day, she would restock the inventory of the canned goods, things like that. And then three weeks later, her family came back, but they didn't even acknowledge what happened. She woke up and she said her mom just said, get your brothers and sisters ready for school again. So she did that. But in that moment, she realized her life had no value in the family. And I think that's what really motivated her to work hard, to not look back, to overcome. And so her way, her survival system was all about push your feelings down, move forward and be efficient. So we all inherited a bit of that, but through therapy, all my brothers and sisters, because that's not healthy either. But she did say, because my father was also emotionally abusive, if your daddy had been a supportive husband, I probably would never have done all, these, all of these things because she was just raised to be a contented housewife and just cook and clean and raise children. But I think that's just who she was as well. Like glass half full, I'm just going to, Look at this as a gift. Like, in a way, I would never have done all of this unless he was the person that he was. What did you personally take away from hearing that story? Did it affect you moving forward? I think I had a lot more, I, I think, respect for my mother. Even though I was an, a full adult by that time, I think I, I had to grow up a little bit too instead of relying on her to do everything spending so much time with her during this period and learning about that because she was a person that never complained. She just never complained about anything. And she rarely had a bad thing to say about people too. So I think she really taught me. And also coming out of the entertainment industry, but gossipy and complainy, it's both those things. So I think it really helped me to understand her a little bit more. 
like when I got divorced the second time, you know, she picked me up from the airport, you know, and I was crying and she was like, you know, you should really not cry so much. It's inefficient. And I was like, inefficient. But I realized she couldn't help it. That's she would never have survived unless she had that attitude. So I tried to have some compassion for that, but also important for me to break this cycle for my own children. Cause I don't want, you know, my daughter to think it's okay to go around life, not crying because it's inefficient. Right. But the not complaining part, that's something I'm really trying to drill into my kids. It's not doing successfully though. <laughs> so speaking of your, your children and especially your daughter, you've carried on the tradition of filming cooking shows with relatives. So tell us about what you did during the pandemic with your daughter. So I have a catering business called Walkstar Catering, and I obviously had to pivot. And we have a home in Lake Arrowhead, so we decided to skip town for about seven months. So when it started, I was so bored because I get bored easily. I just thought, oh, why don't we do a live streaming cooking show? I had done a few here and there with some friends. And she's pretty gung-ho about things. So she's okay. And it just started out something to do and something to get some friends involved and have guests on the show via Zoom. And so we started doing it three times a week. And uh, then we got sponsors. Then we got all these people interested in being on the show. And it became a thing. And we have a pretty loyal following. And we have friends helping us out, like Paul Hemstreet. And my brother now is actually part of the crew, too. So it just became so fun for her and I to to do together. And what was so beautiful for me was to watch her evolution being on camera. Because she's a dancer. So she's used to performing. But in the beginning, she was pretty shy. And then she just, I don't know, large and in charge. And also, my husband just pointed out, in the show with your mom, she would criticize you and correct you the whole show. And now my daughter does that to me. <laughs> so I just can't catch a break. I'm getting, I got it for both ends. Because Becca's very like type A. I think she'll be a producer, not necessarily like on-camera talent. She's just very, don't forget to do this, mommy. And don't forget to do that. And mommy, you didn't add the soy sauce. Mommy talk about the giveaways. It's been really fun because she now takes charge. Like I intentionally try to remember during the show to just turn it over to her. Becca, take it away. Tell everybody what to do next. And I also think this generation of kids doing TikTok and growing up being on YouTube, they're not as self-conscious about being on camera. It's been really great. And she has all these fans. Like people just want to see Becca. This complete stranger was like, the nibbler. Becca is the nibbler because she's always taking bites of food. She doesn't realize she's doing it. So This has become a thing, hashtag the nibbler. And we actually have merchandise that says hashtag the nibbler that we're selling. And also Becca rocks. That's been just so really a lot of fun and adorable to do. And then since then, she joins me when I do these monthly TV segments for Bloom TV for National Pediatric Cancer. So we cook along with the pediatric cancer warrior, along with the the host um, of the show. So I'm also trying to teach her about philanthropy and it's just a great way to do it and also to build her confidence. I think you have a a particular trait that has helped you succeed. My friends have said this. I do think I have a joie de vivre. Like I, I really try to see the good in people and I really try to have fun. And I think that what has really been helpful to me are my friendships with other women and the network of women that I've built because a favorite quote of mine is for every successful female entrepreneur, entrepreneurs, there's five other successful female entrepreneurs that have her back. And I think that there's a stereotype of successful women being bitches and too aggressive. 
but I've found that to be not the case. Maybe once in a blue moon, but most of the women that I encounter that are entrepreneurs or even in my career um, in entertainment really just try to help each other out. So during COVID, what happened is a friend of mine and I, she runs a PR firm, we decided to start a virtual women's game night. And um, it was just like a handful of us. We were playing Taboo on Zoom. But all of a sudden, this magical thing happened. More and more women started to join this chat. And very few of them actually played the game. It became a drawing game. But it became this community of women in this chat, sharing advice, lifting each other up, cheerleading. Like I would see something. This my, She's on the chat. She's a documentarian. Just saw that she was doing a fireside chat. I put it in the chat. Then everybody started to do that for each other. Political commentary. Where do I get my eyebrows plugged? Like everything under the sun. And as a result, I can't tell you how many of these women have gone on each other's podcasts, become friends, lifting each other up. And we finally, and so many of them hadn't actually met in person. We finally had a get together two weeks ago. You guys are going to have to join. We hired a DJ. We danced for five hours straight. It was so phenomenal. But the whole point wasn't to let's network and see what business comes of it. But it just all happened so organically and naturally. And I think I'm just really proud of, proud of that. I didn't set out to, for that to happen, but it, it did happen and it continues to grow. And it's just been so fulfilling for me. Thanks for listening to our interview with Katie Chin. Check out her blog filled with delicious recipes and get a copy of her latest book, Katie Chin's Global Family Cookbook at chefkatiechin.com. Please visit thepassionistasproject.com to learn more about our podcast and subscription box filled with products made by women-owned businesses and female artisans to inspire you to follow your passions. Sign up for our mailing list and get 10% off your first purchase. And get your tickets now for the 2021 Passionistas Project Women's Equality Summit, featuring Katie Chin on the Kitchen Table Talk in the AAPI Community panel on Sunday, August 22nd at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern. And the Passionistas Persist Awards featuring Margaret Cho and Dr. Jane Goodall on Sunday, August 22nd at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. For details, go to thepassionistasproject.com backslash 2021 summit. And be sure to subscribe to the Passionistas Project podcast so you don't miss any of our upcoming inspiring guests. Until next time, stay well and stay passionate.